Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. Back in April, I went out to the National Hurricane Conference as part of the Readiness Lab, that podcast network we're a part of. Man, it was a great experience being their media partner. We interviewed emergency managers from all over the country. We talked about we looked at the expo and the the new technologies that were coming out out of that expo. It was really cool to look at that. But I actually want to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk to talk to one of the organizers of this amazing event that happens every year, or at least back from after COVID. Greg Paget. He is uh, one of the organizers. Like I said, he also happens to be meteorologist. Knows a ton about hurricanes and emergency management. It's a great honor for us to have him on the show. Greg, welcome. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about all things Hurricane Conference and hurricanes really now with the season starting, you know, right now on our doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, let's talk about the National Hurricane Conference just real quick before we get into the hurricane season, because we, we probably have lots of questions from our audience about the hurricane season. Everybody wants to know the predictors. But in terms of the conference, it's truly a, a, an emergency management role to, to coordinate so many different stakeholders, so many things happening. And so from kind of that perspective of coordination, can you give us a kind of a background and what happens behind the scenes to make the conference happen? Sure thing. We appreciate it. You know, last year uh, we didn't have the conference as normal uh, and we didn't have the conference two years ago due to COVID. So we were really excited to have it back to full swing, back in normal operation. Last year was a little bit of a hybrid model. We were in June um, in New Orleans. We typically never do it during hurricane season only because we're supposed to be good emergency managers and you don't plan when you have to be ready to respond but we were kind of our hand was forced because of uh the covid uh situation there was a lull with activity so we pulled it off it was a miracle had about 1200 attendees so really some some good numbers there uh but typically we only do it uh march april time frame every year traditionally we've always gone orlando new orleans every now and then you may see it in Houston or up along the Atlantic seaboard. We're always open to looking at different places and locations. We do plan about four to five years out. So you really have to get with us early to say, Hey, we want to have it, you know, in our neck of the woods, what's the likelihood. And it comes down to a lot of different parameters as well. Hotel size, uh, convention meeting space. We mm. don't like to have the conference at a hotel and then separately at a convention center nearby. What we have found is that it's difficult to manage that way. You're also losing some of your negotiating power when you're trying to get a venue because then you have to negotiate with both locations. And so that kind of throws us off. We tried that model. I'd say, geez, it's been about seven years ago down in Austin where we did it at the Austin Convention Center. And then we had several hotels involved. And again, losing your your marketing capability, you're losing your um, negotiating capability because you're dealing with so many different properties. So we, we've gone really with New Orleans and Orlando back and forth, alternating sites for, for many years now. And that teens, tends to be the model that works really well. We have a steering planning committee made up of volunteers like myself. It is run by the Tate family. Uh, so, you know, a little bit depressing that we lost David Tate, uh, you know, the, the, the leader of the conference last year, uh, unexpectedly, right after the June conference. Um, and of course, this year he was awarded um, and his family was awarded the Neil Frank Award, which is the highest honor that we do give for, for their family's hard efforts and work to bring this conference uh, every year to people who really want to come together to learn about hurricanes, what hurricanes do and how they impact us. You know, this conference started almost 25, 30 years ago after Hurricane Camille impacted the Gulf Coast 
of Mississippi. And not only on, along the coast of Mississippi, Camille was one of those hurricanes that had far inland impacts. In fact, massive flash flooding occurred overnight in Virginia from the remnants of Camille. And we saw so many fatalities uh, up in Virginia from that. And so that really did uh, come back to emphasize the need for emergency managers to come together with forecasters, with the National Weather Service, with the National Hurricane Center, with state emergency management, local emergency management, the media, of course, to all come together and really work, uh, you know, in unison to 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 uh, promote the threats of hurricanes and the impacts of hurricanes. Now, I serve on the Media and Public Education Committee as the chair. And then last year, we also introduced for the first time the nonprofit uh, committee, which I also chair. But we have about six or seven different tracks and committee leads. And these are hardworking folks. Again, they all do it volunteer wise, but they're hardworking throughout the year to help bring back, bring in these workshops and these topics and the discussion. Then we meet, you know, annually and plan the conference in the late fall. And then the conference is, you know, produced and happens every year around uh, March or April. Usually real quick, we're going to pause for this week's disaster tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. The Readiness Lab is trailblazing disaster readiness. Early access for the highly anticipated course, Emergency Management Response for Dynamic Populations is currently live. Think you have what it takes? Join us in Atlanta for an immersive experience. Space is limited to 40. Go to thereadinesslab.com forward slash training to learn more. Okay, let's jump back in. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Talk about the the legacy of the Tate family and what they've done. You talked about us. Uh, I would say a smaller year with twelve hundred. There was certainly, I, I would say, probably more than double that this year for participants. And, and you you think about that. Let's say, let's say twelve hundred, three thousand, whatever it may be. Every year, people are coming in. I interviewed mayors of cities who mm-hmm. uh, were impacted. Um, by Hurricane Ida, who really wanted to understand, you know, hurricanes impact me. What do I need to do as mayors? I, I interviewed uh, first responders. I interviewed emergency managers in, for municipalities, emergency managers for organizations. People are looking at this from all different types of perspectives. And it's really fun to think of that legacy of you're pushing the needle forward. We ha- You had a catastrophic event, Hurricane Camille. And it's like, okay, like, what do we do as an industry now to make sure that we can start reducing the level of impact. And, you know, we were talking a little bit offline about like the hurricane conference really is obviously all about hurricanes, but applies to so many other disasters as well. And so it's a great launching standpoint or starting point for, you know, this idea of mass coordination. You also bring up negotiation from an organizational level, man, an emergency manager has to be a great project manager and a great negotiator because you have to always get to the win and just to even have to show the historical context of what's what worked for the conference also applies to might might what might work for you in mitigation, response, recovery, whatever it may be. Finding the wins within that to to be the most effective in your job. So I mean, great comments there. 
in terms of the conference moving forward and the participants, you know, I've interviewed, I got to interview so many of the participants this year through um, working with the readiness lab and disaster tough, as you've interacted with the participants, what are the, some of the highlights for you that kind of really stand out from like, wow, this is, this is like why this is important to me, especially as a volunteer that you had to have a lot of passion as a volunteer. So like what keeps you going there? No, definitely. I think we know it's almost like a reunion every year because the same people show up to the conference. Traditionally, it's great to see old friends. It's great to see new people that kind of have that interest. We're beginning to see also a lot of younger emergency managers learn about the conference and show up and want to attend. You know, we are an aging uh, industry. Uh, white older males are have traditionally been at the at the helm uh, with many emergency management agencies and organizations, and we're really trying to now see a shift in that, which is great because uh, we need to see diversity amongst those who work in emergency management. And so uh, the conference is is you know uh, is a great platform for that to start to ha- you know provide that environment for that to happen and help educate this new and incoming breed of of emergency managers. Uh, it's really good to also just to engage. With with different folks from different backgrounds, like you said, um, I do. You know, I always, I'm a I'm a hurricane junkie, so I've always been like in, 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 just amazed by hurricanes, and that's where actually what got me into meteorology. I remember when I was a kid, I was about nine years old growing up in East Tennessee, Knoxville, far, far from the coast, far, far from hurricanes. And I remember Hurricane Allen in 1980. Um, don't add the math and figure out how old I am, but I remember Hurricane <laughs> Allen in 1980, and it took up the black and white satellite, believe it or not, that had black and white back then, uh, on the TV, uh, uh, just on the weather part, not the whole TV, just mm-hmm. the weather part. Uh, it took up the whole Gulf of Mexico when it was right in the center. It was so huge, almost bigger than Katrina. And uh, it was Hurricane Allen headed right towards Texas. And I remember that to this day. And I was just amazed about this storm it was so perfectly centric and it had this little white black hole in the middle and they kept calling it Mm. the eye of the storm i was like a storm with eyes you know i'm nine years old and and i'm really just amazed by it and always kind of been interested by it when i went to university of georgia and studied broadcast news you know i knew that i wanted to do meteorology they didn't have a meteorology school there georgia at the time they do now thankfully but they didn't back then um so once i got out of georgia i decided to become another bulldog and went to mississippi state and studied broadcast meteorology and then since you know really have been able to use my broadcast meteorology skills and other in other jobs and roles as a consultant and doing media consulting and disaster planning consulting. Uh, but it really has uh, all come together by my work at the hurricane conference. You know, it's very rewarding for me and to see these people that we see every year helps to kind of bring it back full circle and to see what people have done in the off year or seeing those people or hear their stories from those that have had impacts from hurricanes. I know you Mm. were in some of the sessions there. We had Margaret Orr, who's a chief meteorologist from New Orleans, and she was one of our awardee recipients as well. And she just talked about how she got into meteorology and how, and hers again, her impact was from a hurricane. She was actually in in the middle of a hurricane and her dad Mm. took her outside um, and they looked up at the storm as it was passing over, the eye was passing over and she could see the stars. And then they had to go back in and take cover as the backside of the hurricane was coming over her neighborhood there where she lived in coastal Louisiana. And that actually just stood with her and she decided to be a meteorologist and is still a meteorologist today and doing great work there in Louisiana. So, you know, all of us have been drawn into this profession from one experience or another, or from one event from the, uh, from, from the other. Uh, and I just feel like, you know, we all have lots of stories to tell and I love to hear 
people tell stories, even the old timers. Uh, you know, there's Bill Massey who led, who helped develop the hurricane program within FEMA uh, at Region Four, which was the you know the, where it kind of all kind of really culminated and started. And to hear Bill's stories, you know, I love to hear you know Neil Frank to come in and talk about you know working at the Hurricane Center and all the you know the differences that they've seen in the Hurricane Center over the years, and and just meet different you know really uh, uh, people stakeholders who are who are in this field. You're talking, I think you just identified my next six hosts or my next six uh, guests possibly on the show. You're going right. through. You definitely got to get them on the, on here. You know, it's, um, it, it's really fascinating. In listening to um, the director of the uh, NOAA's national hurricane center or um, the, yeah, I think the national hurricane center, um, you know, and, and his thoughts, uh, Ken Graham, right? Yes. Um, and him talking about that and talking about words matter and, um, you know, all this stuff. It's, it's really fascinating to, to hear from people who've experienced it. And um, that's certainly my background. I've talked about that quite a bit of, uh, on this podcast of, you know, being in disasters and um, being uh, friends being impacted by disaster and how that, you know, motivation was a, was the start, but now it's, it's something more than motivation. It's there's, there's a drive there, an unrelenting or unquenchable desire to reduce the impact of disasters for other people. And, um, w again, what a great experience. You're talking about the historical makeup of an emergency manager. And uh, I agree with you. The historical uh, makeup of an emergency manager looked like one thing. And, you know, I would say that it was a first responder who took a desk job who thought, I'm going to write a plan and no one's going to look at it. That was like maybe 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Pete Gaynor just uh, wrote an amazing article on GovTech and talked about the iterations of emergency management. And he said, we're about to enter 3.0, the next phase or the next iteration of emergency management. And what does that look like? And uh, I agree. Like the National Hurricane Conference is has been phenomenal, phenomenal legacy. But we also need to get the next generation of emergency managers in there and other like events. I don't want to make this a big promo for you know this amazing conference. But it does show like the networking opportunities, the learning experiences. One thing that I noted at the conference that I was just blown away by now i will say that all the presenters were amazing i, I got to go into virtually every room and to, to hear them speak as we were going around um and so no discredit to any of their content but what i thought was really interesting as the participants there were two sessions where there was standing room only in fact people were standing outside the room watching and both happened to be about learning about risk and i was like thank goodness because our industry, in order to get to the next level, needs to understand data and analytics much more. Artificial intelligence, even. like We're not using a lot of the tools that our counterparts are using. When I say counterparts, I'm talking about industry and military, first responders, whoever, are trying to get situational awareness. As you, as a meteorologist, as a scientist, as somebody who looks at data and can understand risk, has there been moments of, I want to say frustration, where you're like, we know this information now, and I, I need my emergency manager counterpart to start understanding this. Is, is there things that, if I was an emergency manager listening to you right now, I'm like, okay, I need to learn X, Y, and Z. What, what would you tell them to learn? If I have frustration, it's really how the public perceives the messaging that we're trying to get out to them when when it's dire need, when, when we have something happening, you know, the time to learn about what to do in a hurricane is not when it's knocking on your door, but to really review that before, like now, 
as hurricane season is starting to like review what you need to do in order to be prepared or to respond or if you had to evacuate are you in a flood risk area what if there's a cat three versus a cat five would you know the difference in which one you might need to leave for which one you're okay to stay and hunker down um mm. all those different considerations are really important for people who live in hurricane risk areas across this country but then also even further inland like i said you could be in a flood risk area and there could be a dying hurricane or tropical system moving over your area and cause massive flooding if you remember that last year that flooding that occurred just west of nashville in the middle of the night out of nowhere and mm. it was historic and it was so much rain you know we are beginning to see a lot more of these wild weather events um, that are due to some say climate change and climate impacts because we've not seen it like this before. Remember the remnants of, of what happened with Ida last year after it made landfall on coastal Louisiana and then moved all the way up into the Northeast and this horrific flooding in New Jersey and New York, the subways, you know, I still mm. see that video of that teenager walking in his basement and walks through the basement room. And as soon as he exits the room, it gets to the doorway. The whole wall collapses from all the flooding that was happening around their house Jeez. outside. Uh, it, it just was horrific. And just, you know, there, there were a lot of fatalities up there in the Northeast. A lot of people weren't prepared for it or expected it. You know, we're seeing these storms. They carry a lot more water content. They can hold together longer. They're moving faster. All these different weather related impacts are causing them mm. to be unfortunately more impactful across you know uh, the u.s and across the the gulf coast across the northeast um but if i had you know uh, any recommendation for a local emergency manager they, they tend to be one or two person you know departments sometimes they are overwhelmed they have a lot of responsibility they have other responsibilities outside of emergency management even sometimes but the the That's goal right. is to, when educating the public or working with the public there are so many resources out there that they can employ and they can utilize definitely i always recommend every emergency manager have a best friend with the media a best working relationship with the media. There have been times when those who work in government on the local side or the state side sometimes look at the media as an adversary. Never, ever should that ever be the case. You know, the media is there to help you amplify every single thing that you're doing, which your goal as emergency manager is to educate the public and prepare the public. And the media is there to do that for you. If you have an adverse relationship with the media, change it make it better find a way to, to to engage with them you know work with them invite them to your eoc in the off season you know mm -hmm. have them participate in your exercises don't let them cover your exercise have them be an exercise mm -hmm. player let them go through that whole process of what it's like to respond that will also make them better at their job on reporting about what you're doing in a storm or a disaster because sometimes they get it wrong they're the media we all we know that they're they you know these are people who yesterday they were reporting on a city council meeting and budget constraints and then today they're covering a hurricane and so they're supposed to be a hurricane expert or emergency management expert no they're not but that's their job to communicate so the more that they can be involved with the local emergency manager and the emergency management system and learn about nims and learn about esfs and learn about how we respond as emergency managers the better they're going to do their job the better they're going to be able to communicate with the public that's like the ironically for media that's like the mic drop moment we always try to look for a mic drop moment and that's definitely it the the i i hilariously enough i'm in media but i'm not in media i don't know i, I don't concert consider myself like at one point i need to like take off the clown makeup and realize like okay like i'm just lying to myself the um you know i, I harp on media quite a bit 
But you brought up two man, there you brought up actually several issues, but two main issues really stood out for me is one, the messaging type, but but also like like inherently emergency managers uh, should be working with their counterparts. Media is a counterpart. And I have been a long-term fan, and this is probably championed by uh, a woman named Jackie Chandler, who was a PIO for the National Strike Team years ago. And she was like, why isn't media a participant in training? And when she used to say that, I'd be like, well... But once, when I thought about it more and more, it's like, they are a huge partner and and like everything you cannot do anything without media rumor control or or otherwise and i think you just made a really good pitch which i really haven't heard before is like hey they cover a, a million different topics it's really no surprise they're not the expert but if you're not working closely with them one you failed as an emergency manager cuz that's the job as an emergency manager but two you're not helping yourself out either I will say that the the messaging and EM kind of drives me nuts. We use different phrases on our podcast and at our company, really, because we recognize that we need to start attacking the stuff from within. Mm-hmm. And my listeners, so they're, I'm probably saying it at exhaustion for them at this point. But like, we don't use the word preparedness in my my company. That's blacklisted. We use the word readiness. Because if I say emergency readiness, that that feels interactive. That feels like I'm doing something. When I say emergency preparedness, people think doomsday preppy, which is not. It's the exact same thing what we're trying to convey. It's the same thing with resiliency. I'm a fan of resiliency. That's important. But I don't think that should be king. So we say disaster tough because you want to be strong or you want to be tough in every phase of the disaster. That includes your decision-making, the analytics, working with stakeholders, making the tough call. You know, that's that's important and, and being a little more tougher, you know, in, in yourself so that you can be, you know, pushing back on that event. The last thing I'm going to call out is what you said earlier when you called yourself a hurricane junkie. That like started to like make me twitch because um, like hurricanes produce so much junk, like like going out to a catastrophic disaster. It's like it's one thing to be a junkie of like, oh, I really care about this stuff. But like, oh, my gosh, there's just so like hurricanes are so complex and the real problem is to your note this is a, a probably our fourth thing we're calling out now instead of two is that you're saying it's getting worse and i agree i have been to multiple events whether it's hurricanes or wildfires you name it where every year even multiple times a year they're breaking the record and you're like that's not normal you're not supposed to break the record every year and so that that's really concerning and if you can if you can like kind of walk us through that, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, because when I say that people are like, well, what about the four hurricanes in one year, 20 years ago? Or what about this? Or what about that? you mentioned hurricane Camille cat five hurricane, but like, what's the difference between like, Oh, cat five hurricane 30 years ago. And like climate change. Can you explain to us climate adaptation for the sake of the listeners? Well, I think, you know, climate change is impacting how many storms we get. Um, 
how strong they are, um, how fast they move, how fast they intensify. That's the really, that's the, that's the humdinger of them all is rapid intensification. We're seeing so many more hurricanes now rapidly intensifying. All that has to do with sea surface temperatures has to do with the conditions around these storms. You know, how quickly can they develop, you know, is there increased rainfall coming off, uh, out of uh, over Africa? And so we're seeing more systems come off the coast, those Cape Verde hurricanes and work their way all the way across the Atlantic, or uh, we're seeing all, so a lot of storms developed right in the Gulf of Mexico really, really quickly. That's what Camille did. Uh, Camille was a quick and Harvey. Quick, same. Yeah. And Harvey as well. Quick developing hurricanes that were in the Gulf of Mexico. Ida did the same thing. Ida developed so quickly into a cat four, cat five, almost at one point, you know, or it may have been a cat five before it made landfall, but, uh, it happened so quickly they couldn't even go through their whole evacuation process in New Orleans. And so mm. when you have these kind of systems now developing and with so many people living along the coast, when Camille hit back in 69, the coast of northern Gulf coast of 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 the Mississippi region and all that, you know, was was bare compared to the way it is now. Uh, a Camille today would be just horrific uh, because there's so much development there and so many people there. But we're seeing these storms, you know, develop so quickly. Two years ago, 30 named storms, you know, historic number of storms out there, never had as many and had to go through all the alphabet storms that we had on the list and then had to go through, you know, the Greek alphabet and all of that, and, you know, cause a little mm -hmm. bit of confusion, not as many last year, but we're still above normal. And then again, now with the season coming up, we're already seeing that the predictions are we're going to have another active year above normal again. Um, and, you know, we're seeing these patterns. We do see fluctuations. If you look at hurricanes over many, many years and decades, you see where there's a lull and then there's a increased activity and then there's a lull. If you're remember though 1992 first storm of the season hurricane andrew mm -hmm. another cat five hurricane hit south florida only seven storms that year you know only seven wow nothing nothing to worry about right if they would have told you at the beginning of the season we're only gonna have about five uh, seven five seven storms whatever this year you would have been like oh well let's have a party let's go to the coast we don't have to worry <laughs> about it but yet the big one is hurricane andrew the first one and again it was another storm that developed rapidly and just slammed into south florida you know Three days out, it was a dissipating low, low pressure area. They've almost written it off. And then all of a sudden, it just generated and quickly intensified over the Bahamas and just slammed into South Florida. And so hurricanes are so unpredictable when you throw in the element of climate change as well on top of that, um, you know, and then with all the development and the people along the coast, you know, it's a terrible recipe. Uh, something that you would go over to your aunt's house and have to eat that you hate. It's a terrible recipe that we yeah. mixed up together that we're going to have to deal with, take our medicine and swallow it. But we really need to do a better job of educating people, letting people be readiness prepared, uh, you know, get them out of there, you know, let mm -hmm. them be uh, able to, to, you know, to respond and know what to do. So, Again, you, you brought up like we're going to have to have you back on like weekly or something because you're <laughs> bringing up so many good things here. Um, yeah, when I heard Director Graham say that, um, you know, the average storm now is three days, I had a flashback to a FEMA Region 6 meeting that I attended where they were talking about um, their hurricane plan uh, with the state. I won't say which mm -hmm. state, but one of the states. And it was 120 hours. They needed 120 hours to start planning for a hurricane uh, from onset. Um, and I was thinking, okay, you're, you're saving 72 hours, you know, almost half, just over half. And that's if you're lucky. 
um, you know, they, they spin up so quickly now and maybe they always have been, but, but, but the frequency, the, I like how you said, you know, it, it could be only five, seven storms. Great. But like if one of them's Andrew, you know, and that caused devastation across the U S that wasn't just in the Gulf. They had right. major problems all the way up uh, to at least St. Louis and beyond. And, um, you know, people kind of forget that too, like the flash flooding that it can occur in other locations. And so, um, you know, we're talking about education, but there has to be something more we can do. I know we can do more because George Siegel, director of um, uh, Last House Standing, who's been on the show, he's also has a podcast, tell us how to make it better, talked about building codes and pre preventing wind damage and all this other stuff that you can do. From a meteorologist perspective, seeing the data again, working with emergency managers, what are some of the things that we can actually do to mitigate threat now? I mean, climate change is happening climate adaptation is is a thing what do we actually do to prevent you know disasters but besides telling people don't move to the west east or the the coast because they're doing that in groves like we can't stop them from from going right like 40 percent increase what in like the last 40 years that's insane yeah. you know anyways and they rebuild yeah as soon as they get impacted by a hurricane you know they lose a home they re they rebuild it right back you know hopefully they're rebuilding the back stronger and able to withstand like that last house standing there uh, you know yeah. after hurricane michael near panama city uh, but we we unfortunately need to see more building codes and stricter building codes and people taking, um, you know, mitigation efforts to make their homes better fortified. And they can do that. You know, you may not have had your home built when codes were in place, but there are some things that you can do. And the great place to go to is Flash, the Federal Alliance of Safe Homes. And they have lots of resources on their website. They're a nonprofit that have worked really to help strengthen that building code process, you know, help be hurricane strong. And they are working with individuals, you know, and communities and states and elected officials and FEMA to help really drive home that need for, you know, what people can do to be better prepared with their with with their homes with with you know being able to withstand hurricanes that straps up in the attic on some of the joists that's you know making sure that the garage door is strapped in because once you break that envelope of your home and those winds come in it's all history after that oh. you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna compromise the structure and the integrity of the home it's gonna blow up the roof's gonna come off you know you're gonna have debris coming in or all that that heavy wind load coming in and so you really need to pr make that envelope of protection around your home the issue is we have to think about marginalized and underserved communities and people who don't have the resources. We have a lot of food insecurity right now. People are trying to worry about getting food on the table. They're not going to go in and retrofit their home before hurricane season. That's they right. either don't have the resources, the capability, or they're working three or four jobs and don't really think that it's going to be an impact to them and that, or nor do they have the capability to do that. And so it may be an easy fix, 200 bucks, but 200 bucks to somebody who's trying to put food on the table is a lot of money. And so yeah. we need to have better programs that address those who can't you know, afford to do it themselves. We need to have better, stricter codes, uh, you know, building codes in place in the, in the beginning. So when I build these new homes that, that we're being better, you know, at, at, at construction capabilities. And, and they do that in Florida, you know, Florida's obviously learned from all the impacts that it's had. We need to see that more along the Eastern seaboard all the way up into the Northeast. Northeast gets hit by hurricanes. Hello, hurricane Sandy. Love you. And then you have to think about Gulf Coast as well. Some of those states in the Gulf Coast, you know, where they don't want to be as enforceable with building codes, they still need to do that as well. So, you know, there's a lot there that people can be doing. There's a lot that government can be doing. But we also have to think about those who, who you know, have some, you know, some some limitations on what they can do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give a final story to just to drive home your point, because I 100% agree with you. I am. Um... 
I've been to enough disasters where disasters don't, I hate to say it like this, but like don't really face me. Like you see, you see horrible things happen to good people and horrible things happen to some, sometimes not to good people. But it's like, man, that sucks. Like that, that's usually the thought like, oh, this really sucks. But one of the most heartbreaking moments of my entire career was in Hurricane Harvey. Um, we, we were trying to, we were doing field assessments on our model to see uh, if our model was correct of like trying to figure out how many homes were impacted and uh, picked several communities. And there was one community, um, I have pictures of it. Maybe I can share it sometime. Um, of the school right next to it. But uh, I was confused by the location, so we went out there. And there were about 30 homes. And I won't share the picture of the homes, but I'll share the picture of the school. There was about 30 homes that were on the fence line of a landfill. And I honestly couldn't tell if the disaster made their roof systems and their homes look like that or if they were like that before the event. Mm. And my heart just was just breaking because not only are you in a literally crumbling a home, a house, and then this hurricane comes in and that fear that that must have just caused knowing that you don't have the resources to evacuate. You can't do anything. You might have kids like, and I had, I had interviewed uh, from people from hurricane Katrina about mm -hmm. uh, busting through their roof and then uh, a three-year-old rolling off the roof and them not knowing how to swim. Like they would have left if they could have. And um, like, I, I, I hate to end it on like a, such a sad note, but like, hopefully this drives people into like, okay, we have to do something. I'm going to make one last call out based off of what you said. We keep on trying to come up with innovative solutions, but we're not implementing the solutions we've already come up with. There's a lot of nonprofits out there. There's a lot of organizations out there who can help. The government is trying to help, but we do a terrible job at messaging and or implementing that, those solutions. Therefore, the most vulnerable of us, and when I say us, I really mean us, right? The most vulnerable of us, we're not, we're not helping them as much as we can. And that's not to negate you know, personal responsibility and effort. However, you can do the best thing you can and still lose. Right. And so those are the people we should be helping out. And I, I don't know. I'm just super passionate about that. So great call out. Um, if you're going to end this episode, you just gave so many ideas, so many solutions for people, to, maybe thought, thought provoking ideas for people to think of. Your last advice to emergency managers, what would it be? Uh, to work with all stakeholders in your community. Don't forget about the diverse and marginalized members of your community. They may be the hardest to reach but they are also the hardest that it will have to recover from an impact in the storm. And so you're, you're, the majority of your community may have insurance. They're going to make it through. They're going to be okay. They'll, they'll be able to recover. It's those more uh, diverse members of the community and those that are less fortunate that are going to have the hardest time to recover if they ever recover at all. So most of your focus and efforts should really be on those uh, those most vulnerable in your community. And if you want to learn more about the Hurricane Conference, a quick little plug, it's hurricanemeeting.com to learn about the next Hurricane Conference next year, that which will be in New Orleans. Great call out. Great, great point. In fact, we'll put in our show notes for the National Hurricane Conference. Again, huge fans. They're so complex. There's either so much junk or you're, if you're a junkie or you want to become a junkie, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a great conference to, uh, to be a part of. And yeah, we went out there as a media partner, but we wanted to. We wanted to be a part of uh, things that are good for the industry and 
And when you're talking to hundreds, if not thousands of emergency managers, having these high level discussions, talking about new technologies, talking about, you know, what, what we should do next, especially as the climate, both in the industry and in the environment is changing. We, we it definitely is uh, worth attending. And so like, I fully promote that again, Greg, so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show, for talking with me. Great experience. Uh, we've been lacking our producer today, but you know, it's, uh, it's been uh, still great to have you on and, and thanks for working with us. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. If you like this episode, if you're gearing up for the hurricane season, or if you're outside of what you can traditionally call the hurricane belt or that golf, and you learn something, we really want to know about it. Tell us in the in our social comments and social media for the Disaster Tough podcast on whatever platform you used. If you have a question for Greg, ask the community. He can answer. Other people can answer. If you have a specific question for him that you don't want to ask the community, I again, I implore you to ask the community because there's a whole bunch of out, people out here who are hurricane junkies like Greg. But if you need to ask him a specific question, whether it's about the National Hurricane Conference or you need more information, you can contact us at the at contact at the readinesslab.com and we'll make sure that he sees it and gets back to you. Otherwise, make sure you, again you like and subscribe to this episode and we'll see you next week. Yeah.